Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. Welcome to the post-Halloween Novo clips. Though Novo is essentially nine, a couple of summer Caesars were wedged into the calendrial count, which must continue to drive mathematicians mad all these millennia later. 31 years ago, on October 31st, 1992, the Vatican in Rome, Italy, previously home of the Caesars, finally acknowledged that Galileo was right. Earth does revolve around the sun rather than dogmatic vice versa. Today's program is essentially an annual replay of witches and dead children. I start today's program with Iris Wilde, Aka Deborah Cooper, Burning Witches, and follow up with an annual tribute to my mother's natal day, which is 12 days before my younger sister's earthly arrival 35 years later, November 8th, two years after the advent of the nuclear age, in which humanity will dwell the rest of its existence on Mother Planet Gaia. Burning Witches by Iris Wilde, with a beginning prologue by Robin Morgan. Repeat the syllables before the lesson perforates the uterus. Anna Rausch, burned, 1628, 12 years old. Sybil Lutz, burned, 1628, 11 years old. Emerzian Pitchler, tortured and burned together with her two young children, 1679. Agnes Wobster, drowned while her small son was forced to watch her trial by water, 1567. Annabel Stewart, burned alive, 1678, 14 years old. Veronica Zerich, compelled to dance in the warm ashes of her executed mother, then burned alive herself, 1754, 13 years old. Frau Dummler, boiled to death in hot oil while pregnant, 1630. What have they done? And now by Iris Wilde, with a quote, Are you a good witch or a bad witch? From Glinda of Oz. Every Halloween we are besieged with images of the bad witch, old, warty, toothless hags with black pointy hats, black cats, broomsticks, and steaming cauldrons in which they cook children and puppies. They cast terrible spells and foretell doom and the murders of kings. Cackling and bent, they shriek out of every fairy tale. The myth of the bad witch is an excellent example of how our knowledge and understanding of women's history has been distorted. From earliest times, women have been witches. Witchcraft, or vichy, the craft of the wise, was a pagan religion of Europe for centuries prior to the rise of Christianity and was the folk religion of the peasantry for hundreds of years after Catholicism prevailed among the ruling classes of the West. The old religion of witchcraft was an earth-centered, nature-oriented worship 
that venerated the goddess, the source of life, as well as her lover, consort, the horned god of animal life and of the hunt. The basic orientation of this religion was to the earth, to life, to nature, with no dichotomy between spirit and flesh, no split between Godhead and the world. Sexuality, fertility, and nature were celebrated. The magic of the witches was an imposing catalog of medical skills and a sophisticated knowledge of telepathy, auto- and hetero-suggestion, hypnotism, and mood-controlling drugs. The witches knew the medicinal nature of herbs and developed the science of organic medicine before there was a medical profession. Paracelsus, the most famous physician of the Middle Ages, claimed that everything he knew he had learned from the good women, quote-unquote. As Christianity spread across Europe, it attempted to convert the witches, a stubborn seesaw persistence that lasted for centuries and which left evidence of an increasing mixing of the separate beliefs. Christianity prevailed, and the horned, cloven-hoofed pagan god was changed into the image of Satan. In the 13th century, the church began a 300-year persecution of witches that would take the lives of an estimated 9 million persons, 80% of whom were women. The torture and murder were extensive. Some villages, after a witch trial, were left with only one living woman. In one province, 400 women were put to death as witches in a single day. Many of those tortured and killed did not practice witchcraft. Any woman suspected to be independent and free-thinking was put on trial. The church enforced the curse of Eve, and that's a quote, Genesis chapter 3, by refusing to permit any alleviation of the pain of childbirth. To be a midwife was to risk the stake and fire. An acquaintance with herbs, soothing to pain or healing, was looked upon as having been acquired through diabolical agency. Here, to be noted, Jews and heretical thinkers, and that's a quote, were persecuted also. The use of the term faggot to describe homosexuals had its origin in the persecution of witches. When a woman was to be burned as a witch, men accused of homosexuality were bound and mixed with the bundles of kindling faggots at the feet of the witch and set on fire, quote, to kindle a flame foul for a witch to burn in, unquote. The chief document used to suppress witchcraft, Kramer and Springer's Malleus Maleficorum, commissioned by the Pope in 1486, discusses the evil nature of women at length. According to this document, the main reason for women's frequent alliance with evil is that, quote, she is more carnal than a man, as is clear from her many carnal abominations. There was a defect in the formation of the first woman, since she was formed from a bent rib, and since through this defect she is an imperfect animal, 
she always deceives to conclude all witchcraft comes from carnal lust, which is women insatiable, unquote. The Malleus also asserts that women are intellectually like children, have weak memories, are liars by nature, and by nature are instruments of Satan. Anyone would be hard put to come up with a document more frenzied in its woman-hating or so destructive. The Malleus was in every courtroom and read by every judge. To disregard it, to challenge its authority, was to commit heresy, a capital crime. And so some nine million women lost their lives. Today, women are reclaiming the word witch and with it some of their lost culture. The feminist movement, which began as a political, economic, and social struggle, is opening to a spiritual dimension. More women are beginning to turn away from the image of God the Father and the sexist teachings inherent in the patriarchal church and are searching for spiritual fulfillment by investigating the female principle of the universe. Many women are becoming more aware of the moon as a female symbol and how its cycles of waxing and waning coincide with their menstrual cycles and mental states. Women are choosing to celebrate full moons, solstices, and equinoxes like the witches of old and are finding the divine within themselves and the natural world. Midwives and natural healers are reviving the ancient arts, and while they no longer fear the flames, they have faced persecution from the established medical profession. It is important for women and men to be aware of how the persecution of witches and the annihilation of an ancient religion has affected women's position today. The heritage, the culture, the knowledge of the ancient priestesses, healers, Poets, singers, and seers were nearly lost, but seeds survived the flames that will blossom in a new age into thousands of flowers. And that is, or has been, Burning Witches by Iris Wilde, who used to be a Cannon Beach waitress. She lives in San Francisco. And she wrote this for the North Coast Times Eagle. And now, something I wrote and have been repeated on this program uh, annually. Happy birthday, Mother. And the following story took place on October 27, 1966. Monsoon winds blew down from China one afternoon in late October and swept across the mountains of the Annamite Cordillera, the spinal cord of Vietnam. Huge columns of rain clouds the winds freighted from the South China Sea massed above sharp jungle peaks and streamed through high shallow valleys that were terraced with rice fields or were wild and uninhabited. Rays of sunlight shot through the clouds like shifting cannon fire into wind-blown trees and palms that broke the shafts into spiked prisms and shadows. The wind was cold, and rain from the advancing clouds hammered the jungle bridges with a heavy roar, 
flooding valleys and peeling away the mottled walls of primitive homes built of mud and thatch, which were bunched together in lonely villages. Rain relentlessly poured down upon a haggard and straggled column of armed and helmeted men who were sliding down the muddy ridges toward a village in one of the smaller valleys. I was among them, second in the ragged file, and followed the point man into the valley. I was able to see the village beyond a maze of rain-swollen paddies enclosed by walls of hedgerows and palms that were whipped by the wind. It was a skimpy place, wretchedly poor, as were most villages in the mountains. The farmers and their families lived a harsh existence and were killed early by disease, exhaustion, and hunger. In a sense, they were frontier people who had left their culture in the overcrowded coastal plains and settled on its rough fringes among Stone Age tribes they loathed and feared in much the manner of my own ancestors among the Western Indians. The village was an island amidst an ocean of drowned rice fields and seemed suspended in the history of approaching armies. I looked back at the other Marines stumbling down from the muddy ridges and saw the reflections in the brackish water of the rectangular paddies cast against the salt and pepper sky like etchings of war gods. I noticed the point man was having a hard time crossing the valley along the spines of paddy dikes that collapsed under the weight of his feet. He was a short, fat man, hunched in his labored walk in the sucking mud, and were it not for his clothes and helmet, I might have mistaken him for one of the small apes that lived on the higher slopes. His back was bent, his hands grasped his knees and pushed his legs to drive them like sluggish pistons, one slippery step after another. His rifle swung loosely from a sling draped over his right shoulder and bruised his hip every move of his legs. His red, jowly face was haggard, almost cadaverous, shriveled like an old orange under the green and brown dappled steel bowl that covered his head, which swivered from side to side almost mechanically, his chin and nose arched as if he were literally sniffing whatever might be ahead or around an ambush hidden in the trees and bushes, a sniper in the palm tree taking aim. He abruptly dropped his head every few moments to detect explosive landmines or booby traps that might have been planted in the fields after the rice harvest a month earlier. His head seemed almost as loose as his rifle, and I would not have been surprised if it turned completely around and stared at me. The thought hardly formed. A shot cracked from the village. Its flat echo was the sound of a popped paper bag. At the same instant, the point man splashed backward into a paddy. A silence as sudden as the shot lasted only a second. Most of the other Marines dropped to the ground and started firing rifles and machine guns into the village. I discovered myself half-submerged in water and mud, choking on slime and vomit. I tried to focus my eyes on something to shoot at, but saw only a small hill I had not noticed before. After a few seconds, I realized it was the point man's rounded stomach sticking out of the water like a dumpling in stew. A voice bellowed over the gunfire, and it raggedly ceased. The voice shouted again, 
and the Marines behind me began to withdraw back to the ridge. Three of us ran to the point man and started carrying him. He was dead, a hole in his right cheek blown out of the back of his head, which dripped blood and brains after we lifted him from the paddy. And he had not taken an ounce of weight with him when he died. Our initial attempt to run slowed quickly to a lurching walk. I had his legs and pushed at him as if he were a wheelbarrow, desperate to get out of range of a second shot. We finally dropped his body next to a tree and covered him with a poncho. We spread out along the ridge bottom, which was heavily brushed, and pointed our weapons at the village. An officer crouched against an embankment and shouted into a radio for an airstrike. He shouted again at another officer who was trying to locate the village on a rain-soaked map and shouted back into the radio. We waited for the jets like executioners. The village was almost completely obscured by the rain and by fogs rising from the fields. It appeared and disappeared, as if straining to vanish before it was found by bombs, to become as much a phantom as the man or woman who had killed the point man. Two phantom jets came at sunset. The rain had stopped with the suddenness usual in the tropics, and the sky was rouge through holes in the darkening clouds. The jets shrieked down from the tops of the mountains and flew straight for the village just above the mists, that blanketed the fields. Two phantom jets came at sunset. The rain had stopped with a suddenness usual in the tropics, and the sky was rouge through holes in the darkening clouds. The jets shrieked down from the tops of the mountains and flew straight for the village just above the mists that blanketed the fields. They barely cleared the trees as they dropped aluminum canisters of napalm. Great jellied globes of fire erupted from all over the village, instantly swallowed by billows of black smoke that were as immediately consumed by a terrible heat. The village caught fire. Houses exploded into flame. Their thatched roofs burst into the air. Palm trees flared into torches. Even the mists in the fields were burned away, and we who cowered at the bottom of the slope were slapped by the heat. The jets rolled back and came again. They dived down the same ridges and across the fields and dropped their last canisters into the flaming village. I stared at the fires. I felt the stinging heat against my nose and eyes and smelled the acrid smoke blown off the fires by the wind. Helicopter gunships flew in a few minutes after the jets left, and though they were tossed wildly by the wind, they careened over the paddies like large dragonflies. I heard the heavy clatter of their machine guns as they shot up the fields on the other side of the village. Two helicopters shot rockets into the burning village, then raked it with machine gun fire. A single helicopter broke off and flew towards us and landed next to green smoke erupting from a grenade tossed by an officer into the paddy in front of us. The point man's body was heaved into its open side door like a piece of rubbish. The helicopter lifted unsteadily into the air and with a great burst of power swung onto its side and arched around the mountain and flew across the wind. It rejoined its flock, which climbed over the jungled mountains and followed the jets southeast to the coast. We were left alone again. 
the sounds of machines and guns were replaced by final explosions of the fires in the village. We waited until they burned down and crossed the paddies at dusk. The wind blew into our faces and stung our eyes with smoke and ashes. A thin man led us this time. He took us past burnt animal pens, each with its own dead water buffalo. The blackened stalks of palm trees towered above us as we entered the ruined village. We first came upon an old man whose skin was burned green and black. He lay on a raised bed of wood that was charred and smoking. He wore a tattered purple robe that had caught on fire but was not completely burned. His eyes were closed. Flies buzzed around his open mouth. His stiffened arms and hands were raised toward the sky. The wind blew at his scorched white hair. We next passed an elderly man and woman whose bodies lay curled like fruit peelings in front of a house that had burned to a bed of glowing coals. The thin man hacked through a wall of broken and smoking bushes with a machete. We emerged from the ruined hedgerow into a stone courtyard that was bordered on three sides by a low stone wall. At its center was a house, its white walls built of stucco and mud topped by a peaked clay-cobbled roof that had partially collapsed. The walls were stained by moss and in parts overgrown with vines, some of which had been set afire. The courtyard was filled with the bodies of children. Some of them were horribly burned or mangled. Others seemed only asleep, their skins a bright cherry color, as if they had merely been sunburned. A few bodies were not complete, and others more than one, possibly fused by heat. There were at least a score of them, older children, young children, and babies. I stopped and stared at them. I tried to walk away, but I could not move. I did not want to look at them, but I was horrified and could not stop staring. I almost vomited the same instant my eyes filled with tears. My mind started to unstick. Thin calluses that had spread over my sensibilities blistered and ruptured like scabs of wounds. I was engulfed in despair and shame. Ugly sights of broken children in cities and villages superimposed over the bodies starved and emaciated children whose arms or legs were fly-infested stumps, whose small bodies were raw and bleeding from wounds and sores, who begged and sometimes stole for food like desperate young wolves and died alone and unmoored, murdered sometimes by each other. I tried to shut them out of my eyes for months. I had deafened my ears to their screams and pleas, but they persistently haunted my thoughts and filled my dreams. I knew instantly and with chilling horror that the dead children in the courtyard had been left there intentionally, carried from all parts of the burning village by survivors who fled into the fields away from us, perhaps many of them killed by the helicopters that hunted in the wake of the jets on the far side of the valley. My friend Willie Mack stopped and stood with me over the bodies. His eyes were empty. His gaunt face expressionless. Marines passed us and moved deeper into the ravaged village. Their rifles darted nervously, like snakes searching for prey. A few looked at the children. Most tried not to. They did not want to add these deaths to their imperiled lives. They saved their sympathy for themselves. 
they left them for us, I said almost in a whisper. I felt Willie Mack's sudden hard gripping of my arm, pulling me away. Come on, he said, it's no good. I stumbled along with him through the broken village. We came across more bodies, steaming with flies, and in some instances parts of bodies, and the bodies of several dead pigs, dogs, and water buffalo that had been cremated in pens behind burnt houses. We found some Marines sitting on the hard dirt floor of a partially roofed house, which was fringed by a grove of blackened palm trees. Find some place to crap out, one of the Marines said. We're staying the night. We shared the village with the dead who remained where they died. Heavy rain fell most of the night. I leaned against the doorframe of a house that was not completely destroyed and stared out into the dark toward the moldy courtyard and the dead children. My vision was obscured by smashed, burnt dwellings and hedgerows and by the ghostly density of rain and fogs that rose from the mud and were whipped by the wind into tattered streamers that seemed to be souls leaving the dead, wreathing around the scattered ashes of their homes a final moment before vanishing into the stormy sky. I imagined the bodies of the children withered and curled like leaves fallen from trees, pounded by monsoon rains into compost, their blood leached by the rain, their horrible burns cooled and softened. I turned and shouted into the darkness of the house, why didn't they get the hell out of here? They knew we were coming. They knew we'd blow them up. Shut up, Willie Mac hissed. You almost got yourself convinced it's their own fault they're dead. You probably wouldn't even give a damn if you hadn't seen the kids. I've seen kids blown away. Sure, but not like this, he said quietly. You're scared. You think those kids are your death warrant. You think they're going to get you for this. What about the sniper? What about him? All he did was pop one of our boys. We turned their kids into torches. Of course he was right. I was terrified by the hatred behind the display of the dead children and at the vengeance their deaths demanded. I felt I would be hunted down for their murders, and if I escaped to Vietnam, that eventually my own mind would be the hunter. I smoked a cigarette and rolled into a poncho on the floor of the house, but was unable to sleep. I lay awake for a long time and finally became aware that it was my mother's birthday. I had forgotten. Perhaps the dead children reminded me. I wondered if any of their mothers remained alive, and I felt again my fear of their grief and hatred. Happy birthday, mother, I whispered. Your kids are dead. You say something, Willie Mac's sleepy voice croaked. I was thinking about my mother. You're a cesspool of neuroses. I just remembered it's her birthday. Happy birthday, mother, Willie Mac said. The next day, we left the dead village and climbed the mountains on the far side of the valley. This is Michael McCusker. Joanne Rideout continues as this program's engineer. 103 years ago today, on November 2nd, 1920, radio station KDKA broadcast the result of that year's presidential race between the amorous, can't say no, Warren G. Harding and James M. Cox, which is considered
considered the first significant radio news show in the USA. You've been listening to A Story Told on KMUN, featuring Michael McCusker, journalist, activist, former firefighter, and Vietnam veteran. Michael has been sharing essays and poetry on A Story Told for decades on KMUN. For 30 years, he published the North Coast Times-Eagle newspaper out of his home in Astoria, Oregon. Michael currently shares his work and the works of other authors from his home on the Central Oregon coast. Join us here next week for A Story Told.